Earth is a spaceship, just like Apollo. And just like Apollo, the crew must learn to live and work together. We must learn to manage the resources of this world with new imagination. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Jamie, who was that? It was Jim Lovell, the one and only. Mm-hmm. It's 50 years today, December the 21st, 1968, Apollo 8, launched from the Kennedy Space Centre. It's amazing, isn't it? What a Christmas that was. Yeah. I mean, I imagine... I was, wasn't born for another 11 years, but you get yeah, my yeah, point. Yeah, it's the first Christmas in space, in fact. Absolutely. First people to leave Earth. First people to see Earth as a whole planet. Just incredible. We came all this way to explore the moon. And the most important thing is that we discovered the Earth. So cool. William Anders. Slam dunk. The old Bill. Well, we covered Apollo Eight quite extensively on podcast 60. Yes. Which is exactly 52 podcasts ago, you may notice. It is. Because it was exactly this time last year. I really enjoyed that episode. I loved learning about Apollo 8 and how incredible it is. And then podcast 75, Jamie, we interviewed Robert Curzon, who's got a really fantastic book out about Apollo 8 called Rocket Men. We did, and... Yeah, you must get that book. It is beautiful. And talking of books, also, David Baker has one with the gloriously ace Anatoly Zak, the Race to Space oh, anniversary edition. So coming good. Out this year. And let's not yeah. even talk about our, our interview to look forward to uh, very soon is with the wonderful Kate Howells um, and her book, Matt. What's the title of her book, Jamie? Space is Cool as Fuck. Jamie, that really is. That's really beyond the pale. It sounds a bit more harsh when an English person says it, doesn't it? Than a Canadian, yeah. There we go. Just a quick few facts about Apollo 8, Jamie. Hit me. First Christmas for humans in space. Boom, tick. First humans to travel beyond low Earth orbit. Tick. First people to see Earth as a whole planet. Huge tick. Wait, wait, hang on a minute, Matt. Are you telling me that it's not a flat plane? <laughs> well, a quarter, well, we've only got Jim Lovell, Will what Anders, the... Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, <laughs> Eugene you know, Cernan. I saw, I, saw a, I saw a flat earther say, yeah, but you see all these astronauts and military men and women and uh, they're all from the military. It's like, no, they're not. Well, Neil Armstrong isn't. <laughs> no, to start no, off. no, they weren't. <laughs> they're, they're, they're teachers. and I mean, it's, it's just, uh, let's not go there. Let's not go there. But first people to see the far side of the moon. Tick. First people to see an Earth rise. Oh, yes. And the first people to re-enter Earth's gravity well. And they managed the Van Allen belt problem. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't, turned out it wasn't really much of a problem because you go through quite fast. Well, I'm sure you don't want to linger around in there for for certain. Uh, Jamie, if you're wondering for something to do this weekend, if you're in London or you're not in London, you're travelling to London this weekend, pop into the Science Museum because Bill Anders' spacesuit is on display there. Oh, yes. Well, I'm in London on Saturday, Max. I'm going to see a a climbing film called Free Solo. Uh, So maybe I'll pop, pop by after. Isn't that Return of the Jedi? (laughs) <laughs> good <laughs> thanks good good it took you some time 
this isn't the podcast host you're looking for. So, I want to wish Yuri Ivanovich Malenchenko a happy birthday, or Uzdenem Rozdenya. Nice. Happy birthday, Malenchenko. We're on first first half of first name terms. <laughs> first half of last name terms. Damn it. <laughs> Sorry, right, I'm just checking that you were still awake, Matt. Yeah, you I are. Am. He is. He's a retired cosmonaut, and you know he's one of the top career time in space because he's been on both Mir and the International Space Station, so he's proper clocked up the hours. Double whammy. I think, I think he might be number two. He may be number three. I can't, I can't, work, it, I can't work it out. But get this. He's the first person to marry in space. What? Yeah. He married Ekaterina Dimitrieva, who was in Texas. Obviously, that's a very traditional Texan name. And he was flying over New Zealand at the time wow. on the International Space Station. You just have to have a license, don't you, to be able to marry someone? It must change for wherever you are. I guess so. Yeah. There's a specific rule for being 240 miles over New Zealand. You may anyway, now kiss the space bride. Born December the 22nd, 1961. Happy birthday, old boy. <laughs> Uh, Jamie, good news this morning. Oh, I need some. Alexander Gerst, yes. our German ESA friend. Love him. Arrived safely home along with uh, oh, Serena yeah. Anon-Chancellor. I saw this mm. landing because <clears throat> our mate Eric Berger put up on Twitter that you could watch the landing live and, uh, and me and uh, Jake, uh, our, our other mate in the podcast world, were, were quite excited about that one. So... Glad that they uh, have landed safely. I, I want to stop you. That it should be Jake and I, not me and Jake. But we'll, yeah, we'll, let, let's listen, press on. You're just not cool. <laughs> so they they you just touch, don't speak like us street kids. They touch down on the snowy steppe of Kazakhstan at twelve o two, or to you two past five this morning. Welcome home, boys. A one minute ahead of schedule. And I always think about that. If it was ahead of schedule, does that mean they were going slightly fast and therefore it was a bit bumpier when they hit the ground? Interesting. Yeah, 197 days in space. And it was a, a very eventful time, what with people drilling holes in the Soyuz and the Soyuz not quite making it up. Woo! I was going to say, I wonder if there's some slight relief. Yeah, well, I mean, they, well, they almost back. thought, of course, that they were going to have to man the spaceship for a bit. Oh, goodness. Yeah. What else has happened this week in space? Well, we can't not talk about the excellent Virgin Galactic footage. Good old Brano. So Mark Forger Stuckey and CJ Sturkrow, uh piloting VSS Unity. Yep. I know you love a stat, Matt. No, I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Mac 2.9 soared to an altitude of 82.68 kilometres. Matt, is this what Jonathan McDowell thinks of as space? The last I saw, he was thinking that maybe, yeah, over 80 kilometres feels like space. Feels like or is? Well, I mean, it's, it's all arbitrary, isn't it? <laughs> well, I think, it, <laughs> I, mean, I, I think, do you know what? <laughs> There's uh, not an actual line I don't there. think it matters. I'm just putting it out there and I'd like to congratulate them. And uh, wow, I mean, that's a that's a big big step for them isn't it because i can remember when i first moved to london i applied to uh, to be crew it's taken them a long time and i think that they they appreciate now how difficult it is just to get into space but 
fair play to him. Respect. Well, yeah, that, I don't think Virgin are getting the kudos they Agreed. probably deserve right now. Hmm. Right. We were supposed to have four rocket uh-huh. launches yesterday. Four. I say four. But the Americans couldn't get their acting gear. So the Indians and the Europeans managed it. So we'll start with the Indian triumph first. The GSAT 7A satellite was launched by their GSLV uh-huh. Mark III. Oh, it's my favourite type. I was looking at the pictures of the, uh, I guess it must be the Sri Harikota uh, launch facility. And their buildings are beautiful because they're all painted in kind of Ooh. pinks and purples. They're, you know, I saw vehicle that assembly That's beautiful, isn't it? It is amazing. Yeah. Looks really good, doesn't it? I thought it'd be worth noting that India are studying how to reuse their spent rocket stages. Ah, okay. Yes. So on their other launch vehicle, the PSLV, the fourth stage, they're looking at uh, using that as a kind of satellite as a very cost-effective way of having a, 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 well, what was going to just get chucked away and burnt up in the atmosphere or just into some form of graveyard See, orbit. that is They're going clever. to use and sort of get it, get it into a orbit and use, and use it for experiments for university students and other people who might be able to... I like that. That's to, very eco yeah. of them. I'm all for it. They, well, I've not heard of that type of reusing uh, rocket stages, but it's very clever, isn't it? It's very clever. Well done, India. And the other successful launch was by the Europeans of a French armed forces satellite by a Soyuz flying out of Kourou. Okay. The Delta IV Heavy and the GPS satellite on a Falcon 9 both scrubbed. They were both nango. They gone. Bepi Colombo. Oh, Bepi. She's been firing her electric propulsion for the first time. It's going to go flying around. Okay. Get, get this. It's got to travel 9 billion kilometres and do nine flybys of Earth, Venus and Mercury and loop around the sun 18 times. And to do that, it's got to burn its thrusters 22 times. And this is the first one. So they're firing up these electric propulsion. And normally, if you've got uh, your kind of normal rocket engines, it would last a few minutes, at most a few hours. Uh These are ion propulsion units, very, very, very advanced. Extremely advanced. Uh, Very advanced. And do you know what? This thrust, this thrust, thrust. Stop saying thrust. Thrust. Instead of being on for hours, is going to be on for two months. I'm just, I'm just blasting out there, so it yeah, can swing by it. Earth in April 2020. It's quite a how slow. can it do it for that long? Because ion propulsion is extremely efficient. Sounds like it. In, two months. Yeah, two months, and and that's nowhere near burning through its fuel. So very, very, very high specific impulse. Um, wow. Yes. Um, Bepi Colombo's maximum planned thrust level the, for the entire journey is 250 millinewtons. Now, just to put that into perspective, Jamie, Bepi Colombo's being dragged around the solar system by the equivalent of 250 ants. 
Okay, mine's been blown. Yeah. We've only been talking for 20 minutes. It's four tons. Four tons Bepi Colombo weighs, but even though they've got tiny thrust, they're incredibly efficient, and it's and it's a fantastic way of getting around the solar system, as proved by missions like Rosetta and Dawn. It's pretty fantastic. good, that. It's pretty good, that thrust. It kind of sounds like my Tinder profile. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, listen, it's an out-of-world experience, it Matt. Is. Now, listen... Matt, Mm -hmm. exactly one year after the signing of the Prometheus Demonstrator Development Contract between the European Space Agency and Ariane Group, testing of the 3D-printed gas generator has started at the DLR site in Germany. Can you pronounce this uh, town, Matt? Lampold Schalsen. I love it. Prometheus is is a rocket engine that doesn't get anywhere near the amount of press that it should do, I don't think. Everyone is talking about all the others, but this is a very important rocket engine for uh, Europe, I would say. I concur. In fact, I can't put it better than Alain Chamon, who's the CEO of Ariane Group, stepping down at the end of this year. The success of the gas generator campaign, as well as compliance with the scheduled Prometheus design review date, is excellent news for the development of the European technologies of tomorrow and the future of Europe's launches. It is vital to demonstrate the pertinence of our technological choices. Less than a year before the ESER ministerial conference, which will decide the evolution of our Rhin-6. Sorry to any French people listening, but Come actually with- I thought that was pretty good, Matt. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> But the great thing about this particular rocket engine is that it uses methane. Oh. Matt, let me ask you a question. Who else uses methane? Oh, good question. Well, no one really uses methane at the moment, but it looks like that's all about to change. So Blue Origin, of course, have built the BE-4. Correct. Which United Launch Alliance have... um, have purchased essentially for their for their Vulcan, their new Vulcan rocket, which we announced on our hundredth podcast live. We dropped that. Yeah, we dropped that. We dropped that bomb. <laughs> yes, uh, and of course it will feature on New Glenn, of course. Uh, but SpaceX are building the Raptor engine as well, which which runs Correct. on methane. Uh, the Europeans are already developing Mira for Vega. For the Vega rocket, Amira is a t- is a, is a fourth stage rocket engine, I believe. Uh, but why, why, Jamie, why methane? Well, let me give you some points. Mm-hmm. Matt, methane being not a long chain of carbon means that there are less intermediate products, so you avoid having soot forming in your rockets plumbing. This is a good advantage over RP one for reusable rockets. Yeah. Yeah, because, yeah, RP-1 is made up of lots of different hydrocarbon chains, and so you get all sorts of different byproducts and 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 coke forming in the, yeah, like you said, in the plumbing. Nice. What yeah. else? Well, so methane has got lighter exhaust, and so, as you know, Jamie, that translates into a higher specific impulse. That's absolutely mm-hmm. right. And... It's less dense than RP-1, but more dense than liquid hydrogen. Bit of a downside, but not that bad. 
Yeah, so because it's less dense than RP1, you obviously, we've talked about this before, where the fuel tanks have to be bigger to carry it. And of course, if you've got bigger fuel tanks, it means it's heavier, which means you need more fuel. And if you need more fuel, Correct. you need bigger tanks. And if you need bigger tanks, you need more fuel. And ah, oh, the rocket equation. Oh, don't get me started. But the other advantage, as far as I can see, is that it burns cooler. And so it's better for reusable engines. You don't have to work so hard to stop all the engine parts being destroyed by the ridiculous heat absolutely and it can be made on mars using the saboteur process ship hydrogen to mars and then that can be converted into methane using the planet's co2 this blows my mind that i love the idea of us doing this one of the first times that that was proposed was in which book oh i don't know but was it anything by arthur c clark no Oh, who? Bobby Zubrin. Bobby Z. And his Mars Direct. What a legend. But it's quite, well, I say quite easy. You should see how hard it is. But in terms of rocket science, it's quite easy to convert. If you've got loads of hydrogen, yeah, you can make methane and liquid oxygen just using the uh, Mars's CO2 atmosphere. So it's very, very handy. So presumably that's what Elon Musk has got in the back of his head. Well, which is also why they were excited to find any water on any outer planet or moon because we know that we can split that into oxygen and hydrogen yeah jamie i've got space word of the week you haven't yeah i have what is it autogenous pressurization oh Oh. (laughs) autogenous is that one word (laughs) well no (laughs) space words Space, space words phrase. of the week. Space phrase of the week. Okay, hit me with it. So, the great thing about using methane is, you know, you've got to have pressure in the tanks. Basically, you're using so much fuel, tons of fuel, like pouring out the back of your um, spacecraft all the time. Yeah. You, you obviously need lots of pressure to push it through the rocket itself. And yeah. that pressure with... SpaceX, they use helium tanks uh, and pressurised helium to push it through. But Ah. with this, you can use methane to pressurise the methane tanks by just circulating a bit of the methane round the hot engines to get it uh, into into high pressure. Get it warmed up. Love it. And that is a clever use and makes the whole rocket simpler less complicated and probably less heavy. So that's um, autogenous pressurization. Well, I love that. I'm going to remember that one. That might, I might put that in everyone's cracker at Christmas. Yeah, and as, that cool, as the cool methane goes round the engine parts, of course, it can keep the engines cold. So because methane is cryogenic, it keeps everything cold. So, Wait, Matt, are you saying that not only is it cool, as in the urban word cool, yeah. but it's literally cool too? Yeah, it's cool in both ways. So that Damn. is so that is why everyone's trying to create these methane engines. And Prometheus is going very, very well by all accounts. So congratulations. Do you know where the word methane comes from? It comes from a Greek word because everything's Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, methy, M-E-T-H-Y, mm-hmm. which is related, as you know, Matt, to the English mead, mead and hyle, yeah. H-Y-L-E. Mm-hmm means wood it was first kind of discovered as a kind of wood alcohol yeah i see what you're trying to say there well i mean look it up 
Just yeah. educate yourself, please. <laughs> Good. Methane, wood alcohol. Yeah, there we methyl. go. Mead heil. Shall we stick with ESA? I think we should Let's stick, stick with, with ESA. ESA. They've just announced the winners of their new space transport services competition. Oh, here we go. Who's won? Yours and my favourite, Space Tug. Yes! Get, Get in. in. I knew that it would come through. Yes, and they offer orbit-raising services to satellites, customers, via electric propulsion. Just the sort of propulsion we were talking about earlier on. Well, what a beautiful surprise. Congratulations, Space Tug. And also congratulations to PLD space micro-launcher Miura 5, formerly known as Ariane 2. That is a beautiful thing. Congrats, PLD. People in the space industry don't have much imagination when it comes to naming rockets and stuff. They always are a bit really too similar. don't. Ariane 2 sounds a bit like Ariane 2. And, not, <laughs> <laughs> and not, not only that, the Vulcane rocket engine, which I believe came first, sounds very similar to the Vulcan ULA rocket. <sighs> I mean, I've got a theory that it's Puff Daddy who's naming all of these things. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. you know, he, he, he was on that trip, wasn't he? Puff Daddy, P. Diddy. Now I think he's back to Puff Daddy again. Oh, I it's could... like, just stop. I don't really care for that sort of thing. Oh, it's tiring, isn't it, Matt? It's all very <laughs> it is, tiring. It is tiring. It, doesn't, it makes me tired. That's exactly what happens. Matt, I'll tell you what doesn't make me tired. Yeah. Electron. Electron. A rocket lab, Electron Rocket, successfully launched a group of CubeSats on December the 16th, Matt. So not long ago. Yeah beautiful that's it's ahead of the game isn't it the old electron when it comes to launching cubesats so this particular flight known as educational launch of nano satellites mm-hmm. or the elana 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 what's wrong with elana <laughs> <laughs> oh dear uh let's not forget the 19 elana and this features three satellites built by nasa's centers six by universities and one by a charter school in Idaho. So, Jamie, shall we go straight to our interview of the week? Let's please go to it. Right, so this is Kate Howells, the National Canada Coordinator and Global Community Outreach Manager. Now, we absolutely love this. Kate is our new favourite person ever in the space world, and you'll see why. Roll the tape. Écoute. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. Uh, we're joined by Kate Howells from the Planetary Society in Canada, and we know she's the ultimate space geek and space legend because she has a tattoo of Voyager. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, when I was an undergraduate, I first got interested in space, and it was because I read Cosmos by Carl Sagan, and specifically where he describes the Voyager missions and the things that they discovered, that was really just what hooked me into space. So I became a bit obsessed, and then later on when I first got um, hired by the Planetary Society, I used my very first paycheck and went out and got this tattoo on my upper arm of Voyager. And since then, it has branded me as a space geek. I can no longer <laughs> try to hide it, even if I wanted to. Oh, I mean, that, that's the ultimate tribute to Carl Sagan, isn't it, in a way, that Carl Sagan yeah. paid for your 
Voyager tattoo. I mean, that's that's yeah. uh, that's awesome. <laughs> I, I must admit, yeah. I've, I've been listening to a lot of Carl Sagan's because they've recently released them all on Audible, and I've been I've got massive long commute, so I'm I'm in the middle of the Demon Haunted World at the moment. What mm-hmm. a, what a fantastic book that is! But yeah, Carl Sagan, one of our massive yeah. heroes, and I'm assuming we do often mention him. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, he's the he's the king. <laughs> he really he's is the, the king. When did when did you discover when did you discover Carl Sagan? So I, I think I have like a f- slight memory of seeing an episode of Cosmos when I was a kid, but I really discovered him um, as a young adult. I think I was in my early 20s, like maybe 20 years old. And I remember picking up a, a dog-eared old copy of Cosmos um, from a used bookstore, just kind of on a whim, thinking this looks interesting. And yeah, as soon as I read that, I was just hooked. So I sought out all of his other books. I devoured the original series um, of Cosmos on, mm. uh, on TV, which is just so, it's so funny because it's so outdated, but at the same time, it's so beautiful and still so great. And so, um, yeah, I just became quite a big Sagan head, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I actually st- watched Cosmos with my kids uh, a couple of years ago, thinking it was going to be really dated. And I know what you mean, it is really dated, but it's somehow still one of the greatest science documentaries ever made isn't it it's just fantastic oh yeah absolutely and I, I you know I was glad that they tried to remake it um however long ago that was a couple of years ago um with Neil deGrasse Tyson but it it is not the same nobody can really match Carl Sagan for that you know the beautiful presentation of, of fascinating information I mean he just nobody else does it like him Oh, absolutely not. I, that, yeah, it, there's something very, very calming about Carl Sagan as well. You just, you, you just really oh, like the, the guy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which Matt is still working on the impression, yeah. so we won't put him under that pressure today. <laughs> but actually, Kate, this brings us nicely on to talking about your book, uh, which is very exciting because I know that there's a chapter in the, is it a chapter in the book called um, Love Letter to Carl Sagan or is that just literally a love letter? Well, it's... it's the- the whole entire book doesn't really have many full chapters. It's sort of individual essays, more like. So this one is, yeah, sort of a letter form essay. Um, actually, I don't even think it's a letter. It's just it's just a description of why I love Carl Sagan. <laughs> I had to oh, put it awesome. in there. And I was lucky enough that so we, for the book, we hired um, a bunch of artists to illustrate it. And I, I specifically said to the art director, listen, I, I want whoever we hired to do the illustrations for the Carl Sagan chapter to be real Sagan fans. I want them to actually know what it is that they're trying to capture. And we got some really beautiful work um, depicting Carl from real fans. So I was happy about that. And what would, what would you say is your favorite part of the book? Oh gosh. Um, You know what? I like the artwork the best. I think maybe that's because when I read the writing, I'm a little bit (laughs) self-critical, but I can look at the artwork and just say, wow, these people did an amazing job. I mean, there's such a variety and so much of it really captures the spirit of space and what's so cool about space. So um, I think that's got to be my favorite. Yeah. So if you had to pick one image that would be on the front cover, what would it be? Oh gosh, that's a, you know what? My actually, I I have an answer. It's kind of silly, but my favorite illustration was done by my friend Connor Donaldson, um, and it's a drawing of Pluto and the dwarf pa- planets, but drawn as though they are the cast of The Sopranos, like the mafia show. <laughs> because the, the the piece about Pluto is all about how you know 
people get got sad when Pluto was demoted from planet status, but now he's the sort of the king of the dwarf planets. He's the boss of this group of, of celestial bodies. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> so I, I asked him to draw, you know, a bunch of dwarf planets, but like they're in the mafia, and he just did the best job, and I find it so funny, and I would I would I put that <laughs> oh man, that that's really cool. Now, one thing I didn't realise is is how foul mouthed Canadians were. Well, <laughs> the one thing that's quite funny is that we obviously swear quite a lot on 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 our podcast, but I end up editing quite a lot out, and I've I've always been a bit scared of of leaving too much sweary stuff in, just in case we sort of alienate some of our audience. Did you ever have that sort of thought in your head about going too yeah. far with the language? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean. You know, I have to tell my 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 aunties and my p- parents' friends <laughs> that I wrote this book called "Space is Cool as Fuck," and I don't know what to do about that a lot of the time. But, um, but you know, the the idea behind the you know the cursing right on the cover is that it grabs people's attention, and I think it, you know, it's there intentionally to convey to people like this is a light-hearted, fun book. This is not a textbook, and I I think that. As much as that may alienate some people, um, the audience that it's really going for are the people that, you know, won't be turned off by that and might actually be attracted by it. So as much as sometimes, you know, I, I read back on the on what I wrote and sometimes the cursing jumps out at me and I'm like, oh, what, did I have to curse so much? Um, I, I, I stand by my decision overall. But I think you're right. Like one of the things that we're quite proud of is, uh, that we're trying to get a uh, a core group of people who are passionate about space but might be coming at it from a different angle where they are put off by how serious and um, kind of grey the space, some parts of the space world can be. So we do want to make it a bit more lighthearted and a bit more kind of free and easy. And, and, and it seems to have, have, have worked in attracting an audience that might have been turned off. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in my experience, like I don't have a, a science background. I I got a um, Bachelor of Arts back in the day. And so I, I came to space sort of without the expertise. And I found that so many people that are really deeply involved with space, who whether they're scientists or engineers or policy people or whatever else, um, they kind of don't have the right perspective to be able to talk about it in a compelling, interesting way that an average person would understand or relate to. So I've definitely found that um, kind of trying to approach it in a lighthearted way, there's still so much that you can cover in space that is fascinating and interesting without having to get into like technical detail. So for the average listener or reader, it's, you don't have to dumb things down for it to be interesting and accessible to them. There's so much that just on a surface level is fascinating. And to be able to kind of present that in a way that is explicitly open to those people, you know, saying right off the bat, like, this isn't for experts, this isn't for scientists, this is just for whoever you are that for you to enjoy. I think that that's, that's really helpful. Because I mean, a lot of people are turned off by science because they think it's out of their reach because you know they did poorly in science classes as kids or whatever else and I think that's a shame because there is so much that is is really cool about science and just like about the natural world that if people I think were more open to learning about it they would enjoy it I think. Yeah I completely agree now actually talking about you just mentioned the word cool I hear that you met your prime minister to talk about space and I think he's super cool is that true? (laughs) 
Um, yeah. Well, is it true that he's super cool? <laughs> well, you know what? Actually, yeah. yeah. Is it? Is it? Tr- a. Is it true? And B. Is he cool? Because from from our from our perspective, it, he's super cool. Because trust me when I say ours isn't. Right. Yeah. I suppose. <laughs> Yours is notoriously uncool, but um, very uncool. <laughs> um, yes, I got so I got to meet Justin Trudeau because he invited Bill Nye, who's the CEO of the Planetary Society and has become a good friend of mine. Um, he uh, Justin invited Bill to come and speak about science because they put all this science in the federal budget, like all this money for science. Um, and so Bill called me up and said, Kate, the Prime Minister of Canada wants to talk to me. Can you please come tell me what to say to him? Because Bill is American. He doesn't really know the ins and outs of uh, Canadian, you know, policy issues. So I, I went along to kind of advise him. But I also just sort of geeked out on meeting the Prime Minister. I mean, it's kind of exciting because, yeah, he does have a really cool reputation i mean i am a little bit more <laughs> liberal than than he is so i have some you know criticisms of his policy decisions but overall i'm glad oh, that sure. he has a prime minister that everybody has a crush on i mean that's kind of cool <laughs> i mean the thing that everybody asked me after i met him was like what did he smell like how soft were his hands <laughs> like especially Americans have such a big crush on him, but it's, you know, I'm okay with that. And yeah, he's a, no, he's a cool guy. He was obviously, um, he was starstruck by Bill and I, which I thought was kind of cool. Cause I got to be, you know, the, the sort of sidekick to the guy who my own prime minister is, is geeking out over. And that's kind of cool. I, I love that. There was a mutual respect thing going on. In fact, people often say the same thing about Matt. They, they wonder what Matt smells like. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and I, it, I, I not often good. have to just m- make stuff up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I've noticed that you've been writing, the, the, the blogs that I have seen of yours uh, are often lamenting ab- ab- about Canada's role in space and how it seems to be declining is that is that something that you're that you still think is that something that's that's happening yeah so yeah the Canadian space program is kind of at at a bad place where it's been neglected politically for a long time and while other countries are you know making big announcements about investing in space Canada is keeping quite quiet and decreasing its investment in space and that's you know it's a shame for the in the Canadian industry, like you know, scientists and engineers coming up in Canada are having to move abroad, and that's no good. Um, but also, you know, as a person who's seeing more scientific discoveries in space, like I want to know what the surface of Neptune looks like. We don't, I, you know, I, so I want more countries participating in that, and you know, so I'll focus on my own country. Um, so that's, I mean, my interest is partly, you know, the Canadian economy and all those sensible things, but also partly just, I want more space stuff to happen. So, um, a lot of my work the last couple of years has been, um, advocacy in Canada, trying to communicate to the Canadian public that there's an issue here with our lack of space funding and trying to communicate to the government that, you know, you know, try not show them why this is a problem and why this is worth paying attention to and, we're at a kind of critical moment right now where the Canadian budget is being prepared right now for the next um, fiscal year. And um, either there will be a big investment in space so that we can participate in um, NASA's Lunar Gateway program um, and send, you know, put, put another Canada, um, like Canadarm robotic piece on that, or just kind of 
step back and not participate in any more exploration. So uh, it's been an exciting but slightly scary moment for Canada. But at the same time, um, you know, my sort of global perspective, uh, you know, I recognize that Canada is one player among many and there are others who are stepping up their game in space. And so if we step back, you know, as a as a patriotic Canadian, I'm a bit disappointed, but as just a, a space lover overall, I'm not worried. I think I'll still get to see what Neptune looks like. <laughs> well, yeah, I hope, I hope you're right. I mean, that yeah, it's the Canadians have been really fantastic. I mean, have you met, uh, presu- presumably you've met Chris Hadfield or? You know what? I'm on my bucket list for years now and I haven't met him. I've, I've been on teleconference <laughs> calls with him but I've never actually met him, so I still don't know what he smells like. <laughs> oh, that we need to know. That we need to know, for sure. So, Kate, looking back at the year, what was the one thing that stood out for you as, as the most exciting moment? Gosh, um, I have to make sure that I'm right in my timeline here, but the Falcon Heavy launch, where those booster, those booster um, rockets landed simultaneously, that was... That was within the right the last year, right? Oh yeah, we're, yeah, def- yeah. we're definitely seeing a pattern there. Everyone we ask <laughs> seems to say that, and actually, we can't we can't disagree. It was absolutely stunning because it was it was such a display of of graceful engineering. I mean, it was gorgeous, and it was impressive, and it was meaningful because you know if we can start to reuse powerful rockets, then that opens up so much for the possibility of, of space development. I mean, what we can do if it doesn't cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars per kilogram to send things into space, like that's, that's huge. So that was, yeah. I mean, the, the, the rocket man, the guy in the convertible uh, sent into space, bit gimmicky, but still, you know, undeniably cool. Um, <laughs> but those boosters landing, that was really what got me. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think what's, what's actually hilarious is Jamie's right. The pattern is, almost word for word yeah. <laughs> everyone is saying that the yeah that that just that image of the two boosters coming down is was just incredible yeah it, it really is a standout moment isn't it yeah absolutely so what what are you looking forward to most in 2019 is there anything really special in space coming up for that that's a good question. I have been so focused on just ending this year that I have not. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I'm excited to see what um, OSIRIS-REx is going to discover at Bennu. Um, and I'm excited to see um, what InSight is going to discover at Mars. Um, I'm hoping that the Planetary Society's own spacecraft, um, LightSail 2, is going to launch in 2019. We're, gonna, we're meant to be launching on the next... Um, Falcon Heavy uh, rocket so uh, that would be really cool but it's being delayed and delayed and delayed um, yeah that I, I mean I don't know I can't remember whether this is slated for 2019 or if it's been pushed even further back but James Webb Space Telescope once that finally launches and oh, is operating unfortunately oh, yeah. even further back than that yeah yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's been delayed and delayed <laughs> so it sounds yeah. like you're much more into the kind of science the sciencey missions of of, of space that the kind of science element rather than the human exploration element am i right yeah yeah i you know i'm not that excited by the astronaut program and i think that partly that's because 
Um, I, you know, going and studying space policy, um, I learned too much. Like I saw how the sausage was made, you know, mm. and I sort of <laughs> have, have become quite critical of the human spaceflight program, especially from NASA, because it's, you know, it's so much a, a political sort of showy thing and there's not as much science return. A lot of people disagree with me. This is maybe a controversial opinion, but I think once humans start doing something other than just going to the International Space Station, I'll be excited. Like space tourism, I think is going to be really cool. Like I want to see Bigelow's inflatable space hotels come to fruition, like that kind of thing. But in terms of just sending more and more astronauts to the ISS, I'm not as thrilled. If the Deep Space Gateway or Lunar Gateway or whatever they're calling it these days, if that gets off the ground in like the coming decades um, and that actually happens and people actually are going back to the moon and then maybe onto Mars, I think that would be really cool. But honestly, for me, the return that we get from science missions is just so much greater. I mean, being able to get photos back from other planets and moons, being able to um, get you know data that show what processes are taking place on these other worlds and how that compares to earth or you know the ways in which it's totally unlike anything we've seen i mean that to me is just so much cooler than a person going into space yeah no i yeah, I, no. I i absolutely agree with that i think that um for me one of the things because I, I was massively into space as a kid and then uh, mainly from from cosmos actually carl sagan's cosmos growing up with that but then I sort of drifted away and then came back because of Hubble, really, and not all the mm-hmm. pictures that Hubble took and 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 the explanations of of the you know the deep field pictures and all those. Yeah. And, and it drags oh, you back field. in. You go, ah, oh, this is this is this is actually amazing. Yeah. The, the science of space, like you said, it yeah. it really does require people like Carl Sagan to have that really beautiful way of getting the subject matter over in an inclusive way. And I totally agree with what you said earlier on about that a lot of engineers and a lot of people who work in the space industry just seem to be completely unaware of how to do how to do that and how to yeah. sort of enthrall people with the with the, the majesty the, of the universe <laughs> it's ridiculous yeah, I mean, the space scientists I know the thing that they get most excited about and want to talk about and they think is the coolest is like some teeny feature of a particular type of mineral that they are studying like they, they're so close to it and they think it's really cool on that you know granular level but you got to yeah you have to take a step back but one thing that I do think is you know opening up public appreciation of space more and more is that the the um like imaging technology is getting better and better like when the Voyager missions were were sending back photos of the outer worlds, I mean, they were pretty cool, but they maybe did take a bit of um, imagination to really get why they were so cool. And that's where Carl Sagan really stepped in. But now when, yeah, you see Hubble images or, you know, images sent back from Cassini or Juno of, you know, the, the beauty of planets and moons like in, in high res, I think that takes a lot less explaining for people to get why it's cool because you can just look at it and go, oh, my God, that's insane. And so, I, you know, I think it's going to be cool as, as that kind of technology gets better and better. Um, I would also so love to see, um, like, virtual reality technology incorporated into space. So, like, having a, like a VR headset that you put on and then you are seeing – you know, these three-dimensional images taken by a spacecraft that's orbiting, 
you know, IO or something like that. That, that would just be so cool and so engaging. That's really funny you should say that because do you know, yeah. do you know Stephen Ringler? Because Harriet introduced us to him as, uh, and we were chatting with him yesterday. He came up with oh. the uh, boosters landing, but he runs a thing called Space Store, which has VR experiences where you go up and, and you can stick on spacesuits, stick on the VR headsets and do precisely what you're saying. So That is cool. Well, there you go. Yeah, so, so, yeah, we were, yeah. we were talking to him like, yesterday. And I'd, no, I'd, I'd not heard of it before either until we spoke with him yesterday. It was a really, really cool We literally talk. came away knowing what we want for Christmas. I did not know about this. Well, yeah, we'll have, to, we'll have to send you the link of that so you can check it out. But um, one thing, Kate, I was going to ask you about was what advice would you have to anyone uh, who's maybe thinking about getting into the world of space, but they aren't interested in the, uh, you know, too, too much, they're not interested in the serious side of it. Is there any tips that you could give them about um, where to begin? Well, I would say that there are many avenues into space um, and you just look to what you're good at. So like I was not well suited to be a scientist or an engineer. um, So I kind of went the policy route because that seemed like the most obvious alternative. But then I wound up finding that my strengths were more in communication and education, that kind of thing. Um, So, I, you know, and I was surprised to find that that was a way that I could work in space. Um, so, you know, there, we need, we need people with business skills. We need communicators. We need, um, you know, every space agency has accountants, you know, like there's any strength that you have, any interest that you have, it can be translated into something that's applied to space. So if people are looking to, you know, professionally get involved with space, I would just say, follow what you're good at and then just apply and apply and apply to, you know, every space agency or space company or space nonprofit or space magazine, you know, there's so many different pieces of this puzzle, um, you know, so many different parts of this industry. Um, and then if you're not getting involved professionally, I would say, I would say, you know, cause you know, working in a field is great, but it also becomes your job that sometimes you hate and sometimes you get frustrated with. So if you don't find yourself working in space, but you're passionate about it, like don't worry too much it's kind of nice to keep something as just a passion and a hobby rather than making it the thing that you, you know, are depending on for your income or where you have to deal with frustrating people and that kind of thing. So don't despair if you don't make it professionally in, in the space sector. Um, there are still so many cool ways to get involved, whether it's through um, like citizen science projects um, or just, um, you know, being able to learn the most up-to-date things as they come out being involved with organizations like the Planetary Society. I mean, I know that that's kind of my job to plug it, but it is really a cool way to have a direct connection to things that are happening in space. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, most cities have some kind of space club. I mean, there's just, there's a really thriving community around space. Like, I think if I were, you know, passionate about biochemistry or something i would have a much smaller community but space there are so many people who are into it and who are passionate about it so i would say like just try to find connections to to other people and and you'd be surprised what kind of community can spring up that is excellent advice that is i think you could start your own uh, you could start your own uh, space podcast as I you know, <laughs> I, I would love to someday. I have, I, uh, I have ambitions someday of starting a podcast, but uh, not not just yet. Don't, tre- you guys don't are- tread on our toes. <laughs> <laughs> I can see it now. 
Yeah, this podcast is cool as fuck. That's, that's got a good ring to oh, it. Oh, damn. <laughs> yeah, there we you should, go. We should have nicked that one. The- <laughs> so, Kate, I, I do have something that I'd like to finish on, and that is uh, we've been asked by a listener of ours for me to do a section weekly called Visions of the Future. Now, I haven't done my first one yet, but if we were to jump forward 100 years from now, what would you think might have already started happening would we have people on Mars? What would be going on on the moon, uh, et cetera? That's a great question. Um, so the first things that come to mind are, I think probably we will have put humans on Mars, but my guess is that it will be a bit similar to what we did on the moon where we got there and everyone cheered and then went there. Right. Um, but I would def. I think one of the things I'm more excited about is um, exoplanet research. I think that in a hundred years, I bet we will have found um, we will have gotten way better at imaging exoplanets and um, measuring their atmospheric compositions and that kind of thing. And I bet that we will have an indication of multiple planets that have some kind of life on them. That's my that's what I'm hoping to see, but I think also just based on the sort of level of the, or the rate of progress with exoplanet research, I think it's quite likely that we will get good enough to be able to te- to, uh, to detect um, signs of life in an atmosphere of a distant planet, and it's got to be out there and. I think we'll be able to detect it. So that's what I'm crossing my fingers for. So that makes you're me saying, happy. You're saying life? Do you mean just life or intelligent <laughs> life? I think I'm just going to go as far as life at this point. I okay. I personally, okay. I believe that there's intelligent, technologically developed life out there for sure. I mean, it's completely insane to think that we are the only ones um, who've like learned how to use tools and that kind of thing. But I think it's probably so far, like few and far between in the universe that I don't think in a hundred years we're going to find it. But, you know, they're looking for things like um, gases in the atmosphere that would be produced by, um, you know, uh, life processes. Like they're, they have, I mean, this is beyond my expertise, but um, this exoplanet um, or astrobiological community, um, they, I think they know what they're looking for in terms of like indicators of um, sort of uh, biological processes. And I think it'll be microbial life, maybe some like, you know, minnows or something like that. But I think that don't get me started on Europa, Kate. Don't oh, get me started God, on yeah. Europa. I'm I'm already dreaming about it. Like I we talked about it on a few few shows ago, and I I literally can't stop dreaming about life on Europa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or Enceladus. Um, Enceladus and that's why I will die cold and alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it, it's it's quite nice to because uh, Carl Sagan, I think, was the he wrote a paper and used what I think it was either Pioneer or Voyager as it passed the Earth. They did a, an experiment to check for signs of life, and it's the first ever kind of experiment run that confirmed that there was life on Earth. <laughs> and it was, <laughs> but it was a first experiment where you, where it was like, yes, this is the technology that you could use to eke right. out whether a a exoplanet had had life on it. So yeah, that, yeah. That, that's uh, pretty pretty. <laughs> that's well, very awesome. Yeah, I, I I think yeah, I really really hope that we spot life out there in the in the wilderness because that would certainly yeah. put our place in the universe in a 
slightly. Uh, I, d- I never, I never know which way it's going to go. Is it more frightening or less frightening? I, I just, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's there's that. I think it's uh, Arthur C. Clarke. It's actually in the book. I quote Arthur C. Clarke because he has this great line. I'm looking at the book right now, trying to find it. Um, and it's, oh yeah, here it is. Um, two possibilities exist. Either we are alone in the universe or we are not. Both are equally terrifying. That's Arthur C. Yeah. Clarke summing there it up go. perfectly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it is summed up absolutely perfectly. Uh, I'm gonna, can I ask you one last question? Because we, 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 we asked one of our other guests this question, and it's it's quite a fun one, even though we had one of our astronauts look at us and refuse to answer it. <laughs> but, but it's, what is your favorite space fact? One that just blows your mind every time you think about it. It has got to be... Um, well, okay, so there are two. <laughs> You're allowed to. You're allowed to. <laughs> One of them is the amount of debris that falls on the Earth from space every single day. And I'm looking up the exact number because it's absolutely insane. I haven't heard this one before, so I'm, lo- I'm excited for it's something this. like, oh, yeah, here it is. A hundred tons every day falls on the Earth from, you know, shooting stars, basically. So material... A hundred tons. <laughs> tons every day. So the That's Earth is crazy. growing by a hundred tons every day. And then the other one sort of related is that as the moon orbits the Earth, its gravity is tugging on the Earth, which slightly slows down the Earth's rotation. So the Earth is rotating a little bit slower all the time, like, you know, Mm. very tiny amount but that technically means that every day is the longest day of your life (laughs) (laughs) i I, I must admit i did spot something like that happening (laughs) yeah right (laughs) (laughs) that is fantastic yeah i'd yeah the hundred tons a day and and no Mm. one in the western hemisphere has as far as we know no one has ever been killed by a falling piece of space debris even though a hundred tons of it come down every day just you know that that is officially how I want to die. <laughs> Your chances be, are very low. <laughs> yes, yes, but wouldn't it be special? Wouldn't it be great? I would go down in history. Yeah, the only person to die from being yeah. hit by a meteor. Yes, and it would be you know very apropos, <laughs> particularly if it hit you in your Voyager tattoo. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Well, I, I have to say that the just the titles of the book and and what I can see, it's very very much in line with what we do on the podcast, and and so I'm sure our listeners will absolutely lap it up. It's there's so many funny titles, some really good yeah. ones, <laughs> and and it's and it's often the sort of stuff that we talk about as well. Like the we've got a bit on the multiverse. You talk about mm-hmm. Tycho Bray. We oh had, my we, god! We my favorite. About, well, we talked about him. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago about how his cousin chopped his nose off and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> he was, I can't believe it. He was he was the best. I mean, he kind of sounds like maybe he was the worst if you had to live with him. But uh, as historical figures go, he's one of my favorites because he's just so over the top. <laughs> sounds over the top, doesn't it? I'm glad we don't settle disputes like that anymore because me and Matt argue all the time about maths. <laughs> 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 yeah, you, you you've swung for him a few times, but yeah, but Jamie said he couldn't go on without his nose. 
So, uh, yeah, yeah, this is true. true. This is true. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think that people should definitely go to uh, Amazon. Other good bookshops and stores are available. Um, and you know, it, what a great Christmas present that would be. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a wonderful book, and it's called "Space Is Cool as Fuck" by Kate Howells and friends. Yes, go get it. Go read it. Go Learn get it. Yeah. it <laughs> yeah. Thanks very much. Well, thanks so much. Thanks Kate, very much for joining and, us. Um, let's catch up in the new year. Yeah, have thank a great you so Christmas. Much. It's been a pleasure, and uh, please have me back again someday. Oh, absolutely, we'd love that. Happy 2019. Well, may, maybe try and get you and Harriet on the same show. That would be fun. That would be yeah. great. I love Harriet. That'd be amazing. Or okay, maybe, or maybe we might meet you at the Falcon Heavy launch when uh, when oh. the solar sail light sail goes up. I hope so. That'd I be, really hope so. That would be super cool. Okay, yeah. brilliant. Thank you All very right. much. All right. Thanks, guys. Merry Christmas. And you. Thanks, Kate. Merry Christmas. Bye. Cheerio. Bye. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive. Isn't she great? I love the fact that she's Harriet's mate as well. That's, that's I know. We're keeping it in the Interplanetary Podcast family, aren't we, Matt? Yes. Wonderful stuff. So please go out, buy her book. It's amazing. And tell us what you think. It's very, very up our straza. I think she's going to be a regular guest. Excellent stuff. Right, Jamie, I have a space fact for you. Better be good because it's nearly Christmas, so we need to ramp this stuff up. It is, it's, it's kind of Christmassy, uh, a Christmas space fact. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, what happens when galaxies collide? I mean, if you look out the window right now, you can see Andromeda probably hurtling towards us at millions yeah. of miles an hour. I mean, it'll take a few millions and billions of years to crash into us, but still, oh yeah, it is going to crash into us. So what happens? What do you think? Do you think that lots of stars will bump into each other? No. Bear in mind, there's a there's a hundred billion stars in the Milky Way and a hundred billion in Andromeda, and they're going to collide. How many stars? But when do you, you think- say collide, you know your first image is that everything's going to explode. But won't they just be sucked into one giant thing? No, no, they're they're traveling really, really fast relative to each other. So no, they are hurtling towards each other. All right, I'm going back to explosion then. You're going back to explosion. <laughs> Andromeda's coming at us at a ridiculously fast speed. Gravity's pulling these two massive objects together. It's just the distances in space are just ridiculous. That's all it is. That's all it is. So it's very unlikely that any stars will collide with one another. Why? Because the distance between the stars is just unbelievably massive, as we know, just to get to Proxima Centauri, our nearest star. Well, Matt, forget forget Proxima. Our sun is 93 million miles away. Absolutely ridiculous. And let's not even talk about Neptune. Yeah, I know, but that's nothing. Yeah, that's what I mean. I know, it's nothing. It's just nothing. <laughs> so I always think this is a little bit like um, atoms not, smashing into one another and and having explosions as they yeah. knock into each other because yeah they're so the nucleus of an atom is so just talking tiny. of atoms sorry to go off on a tangent but can we talk about the photo that you put up online oh my god yeah it is can we have we put that up on our instagram page if we haven't we will it might be the greatest photo ever i it's, it's certainly my favorite photo of the year which is of 
where you can actually see an atom. It's a photo. For the first time ever, am I right? Yeah, this it's hasn't first... been photographed before. Yeah, so it, they've managed to sort of suspend an atom in between these two like probes, and it was done for a bit of fun on a on a wet Sunday afternoon, apparently. And yes, you can it's, you can actually see the atom. I love it. I mean, yeah, completely pointless, but brilliant. Yeah, but it's a bit like that, Jamie. That we don't have nuclear explosions all the time because. The, the nucleus of atoms is tiny, just like the nucleus of solar systems is tiny. This star yeah. in the immensity of space. So, yes, the actual reality is when galaxies collide, the stars won't bump into one another. In oh, fact, thank God. We may not even notice at all. I was a bit worried. Well, the only problem is, obviously, there's lots of gas and dust between us and the stars, and, of course, that will all interact, and you'll get shock waves that might cause star formation and it's probably a bad thing but it's not as violent as you think only for there'll be distance. even more gas in devon on december the 26th because i've seen your christmas table and it's there's lots of sprouts yeah so steer clear people <laughs> it could be dangerous don't light a match there's lots of sea air to blow it away that's true that's true jamie yeah we've got one last episode this year i can't believe it we're going to be joined by we martians and miko what yeah we're going to be joined by those two two lovely chaps oh and my discuss goodness me all what happened in the year i'm really excited because these are two of our favorites and it's going to be a meeting of minds i don't know what kind of minds but a meeting of them well there's at least two clever ones <laughs> oh two clever ones and then there's, um, us two. there's going to be beer there's going to be mince pies probably some kind of chat Space chat. Yeah, we'll try and we'll try and put a bit of space in there. Not promising. So look forward to that. Yes. And we've got we've already got in the bag some amazing interviews coming up. So please, please keep listening. Keep- if you haven't subscribed, please do. And I tell you what, if you haven't been to our website, interplanetary.org.uk, is that the right address? Yeah. Matt? Then what are you doing? Oh, I know. It's just weird. You will find links to our Instagram page our Facebook page, our Twitter account, our merch store. Yes, you can buy merch from us just in time for Christmas. Who yet, hands up, who hasn't got an interplanetary podcast mug? You need one. Big time. But more importantly, Matt, Mm -hmm. what is the link that we love the most? www.patreon.com forward slash interplanetary. So head over to iTunes, give us a nice review. If you can give us a couple of couple of bucks a month, you'd be an absolute... Le- and I'll tell you what, it doesn't stop there, Matt, does it? Because people can actually contribute to the show, can't they? Ooh, oui, bébé, l'espace. Yeah, yeah, that was, in fact, a contribution from one of our patrons. Come on. We'll do a very big shout-out to you next week. We'll give you a Christmas shout-out. So they're still in time to be on that shout-out. For this year, couldn't have been possible without you. The pair of us, the Interplanetary Podcast. We close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you, on the good earth. Look up and be safe. Bye bye, Spodcat. Merry Christmas. Bye. We close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas. And God bless all of you, all of you.